Well, there was a study that uh, was published in the Journal of Memory and Cognition, and I'm sure many of you saw that study. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Tom. Because, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was sarcasm, right? Uh, uh, so, because <laughs> until I read this, uh, this week, in preparation for today, I didn't know there was a journal of memory and cognition. I must have forgotten about it. Okay. <laughs> Dad joke, right? Uh, but a research group at Duke University, I'm reading this from an article that appeared in Psychology Today about 15 months ago. A research group at Duke University recently discovered... Uh, in a set of studies that was published in the Journal of Memory and Cognition that participants had to report the vividness and amount of detail of their personal memories. Now think about it. You're part of a study and they want you to think about all the memories you've had since the earliest memories of childhood and to kind of recount how vivid... Lee, do you remember things that happened uh, for many of us decades ago? And so uh, what they found though was that and they were asking about the praiseworthy events in someone's life, your moments of achievement, moments where you had done something kind to someone, for someone else that they were asking about these morally praiseworthy events, they were asking about neutral events, and then they were asking about morally deviant events. Now, when we say morally deviant, it makes it sound quite bad. But anything that deviates from morality, in other words, anything that we do wrong, is morally deviant. So, where are the times that you got it wrong? And what they found is that people remember their moral transgressions. In other words, let's bring this into the church realm. People remember their sins more vividly than other memories with more emotional overtones. So I was wondering as I was preparing for this Sunday, is there something outside of church, is there something in the world of psychology that supports what I have found in my years in ministry and even the years before that. And that is, do, do people, as much as I think they do, really beat themselves up over their past? And the answer is, absolutely. Psychology outside of a Christian setting even supports that. And so, we've been talking about forgiveness for the past couple of weeks and we've been talking about a couple of weeks ago we began this series looking at God's capacity, limitless capacity to forgive us. Last week we looked at the need for us to forgive one another and there was a video posted to our YouTube channel that I know some of you have already seen but that looked a little further at the need and some biblical examples of what forgiveness looks like when someone forgave someone else. And so today we are looking at the need that we have as we conclude this series this morning, the need that we have to forgive ourselves. Because church, I have found 
over the years that there are some people who will not come to worship. There are some people who will not come to Christ as much as they would like to because, but because they feel like what they've done in their life is so bad that they simply cannot be forgiven. And church, i got to tell you, that breaks my heart. The idea that someone thinks that what they have done is so bad in their life that they cannot be forgiven. And what a shame that is. But I've also found that God's children sometimes will beat themselves up over their past. They will say, yeah, I know that God has forgiven me for that, Greg. But I just can't get past it. And unfortunately, that often keeps them from serving God's kingdom in the capacity in which they're called. It prevents them from sharing the gospel with other people. It prevents them from inviting people to church. It prevents them from teaching a class or getting involved in a ministry within the body of Christ. And that, of course, is also a shame. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, Paul writes that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Now, let's look at this a little more closely. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the the what church? The riches of God's grace. We just sang that wonderful hymn, Amazing Grace. There's a reason that some hymns are classics, right Rick? I mean, some hymns just resonate with us on such a deep level. And Amazing Grace, I think, is one of those. But we think about God's grace and what Paul writes here is the riches of God's grace. And that he lavished it on us. And if you've been hearing me teach and preach for a while, you know what I love about these verses is that word lavished. Because when someone lavishes something on you, it's like they're heaping it on you. They're saying, here... Here's this, but you enjoy that. There's plenty more where that came from. And I have that image of that big old dump truck of grace that just backs up, beep, 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 and just starts, you know, raising up the back of that truck. And that God's grace is just pouring out on us. Paul writes in Romans that, well, because of all this grace, does that mean we just keep on sinning? And he says, of course not. A lot of translations say, by no means. And so no, it's not a license to just do what we want. Sin has consequences. But it is a comfort in knowing that those moral deviations or our past sin is forgiven. When we simply repent with an honest heart. There are no better examples 
of children of God who moved on from their moral failures than what we see in God's Word. And so I'll begin with King David. Uh, Just last week I mentioned David and we, we looked at Psalm 51 where David is saying, you know, uh, in, in response to what happened with uh, Bathsheba and with his having uh, her husband Uriah killed in the front lines of battle, that he writes Psalm 51. Imagine if David had never been able to get past his sin and he never wrote any more psalms. Imagine if he just quit writing those beautiful songs to God. Imagine if he said, well, I've just got to step down from the throne. I can't lead God's people anymore. No, he was still God's anointed despite his sin, despite his moral failures. And so David understood something about God's capacity to forgive because he kept on serving. In Psalm 65, he writes these words. Beginning with verse 1, Praise awaits you, our God in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. David understood that God is a God who forgives. 1 John 2 verses 1 and 2, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Think about that. He is the toning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. I love the idea that when we stand before God's throne of righteous judgment, that we will have someone there as an advocate. That Jesus is going to be there as our defense counsel, you might say. Now... Sometimes in life on this side of glory, you know, everybody who gets arrested gets a public defender if they can't afford an attorney. If you watch any police procedural dramas, you, you've, you've heard them uh, read them their Miranda, right? You know, you have the right to remain silent, you have a right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. But it's no secret that a lot of times the public defender may not be as good as that high dollar defense attorney. But think about it. For all of us, the public defender is the one who shed his blood for our sins, church. And when our transgressions are named, and when we have to stand there before the throne of judgment and own it, when Satan has done his job as a prosecutor presenting a case of why we're not worthy of God's grace. 
Jesus is right there saying, But Father, this one accepted your gift of grace. They were baptized in our name. I shed my blood for this one as well. Woo! That's good news right there, church. That God has assigned an advocate, Christ Jesus. We look at Paul. The depiction here is him speaking in Athens to a group of philosophers in a place called the Areopagus. But imagine if Paul, from the time he was known as Saul, as a young man, never could get past the stoning of Stephen. Something else I mentioned last week, when Stephen had that presence of mind as he was being killed to say, do not hold this sin against them. But most of the book of Acts is devoted to Paul and his travels, to Paul and his preaching. And many of what Luke records in the book of Acts are, are excerpts from Paul's sermons when he would go in to the synagogues of local towns. And one of those is in a place called Pisidian Antioch. And here in Acts chapter 13, he is kind of working toward a summary of one of his sermons in one of those synagogues. And he says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is set free from every sin, a justification you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. And of course, he's in a Jewish synagogue. He's speaking to a Jewish audience. So that's why the reference to how the law of Moses had its shortcomings and that now a new covenant from God is offered to them. A covenant because of the blood of Jesus. And so, I love this, that it says, everyone who believes is set free from what sins, church? Every sin, right? Everyone who believes is set free from every sin. Not, well, okay, we've categorized sin here, and so there's column one and there's column two, and if you've committed a column one sin, well, you're in trouble. No! It doesn't work that way, does it, church? Everyone. All sins. This is preached by a guy who stood there and gave approval while an innocent man was stoned to death. Because he understood God's capacity to forgive. And he was able to forgive himself and keep moving. In Acts, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is writing to the folks in Corinth. And in verse 8, he mentions that three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. It was, uh, it was a thorn in his flesh, as described in verse 7. And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. Church, we have to remember 
that His grace is sufficient for us. And then finally, we look at the person of Peter. Pictured here that morning after fishing all night and not catching anything and hearing that voice from the shore that says, have you caught any fish? Uh, no. Been out here all night, buddy. Don't know who you think you are, but we'd rather not talk about it. And then realizing when he says, well, put your nets on the other side. Oh, okay, whatever. And then here is a repeat of an earlier event recorded in the Gospels. We read about it in Luke 5. This miraculous catch of fish. And it's at that point they know it's Jesus. It's not just a random voice calling from the shore. It's the voice. And Peter, so grateful that he jumps in the water and starts swimming to shore. And there is Jesus cooking breakfast. Got fish over the fire. And that's when we know in John 21 that in his own way he's saying, Peter, man, you denied me. When I needed you on my side, when I needed someone in my corner, you who so boldly said, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ, And if we don't have you, then we don't have anything. And Jesus responded by saying, It's on this confession that I'm the Son of God, that my church will be built. But then that same guy, the night Jesus was arrested, denies him. Three times he had an opportunity to say, Yes, I'm one of his followers. Three times he says, You don't know what you're talking about. I am not. One of the people, you, you, you saw someone else. You did not see me with him. And so now in this moment, Jesus gives him an opportunity to make it right. Do you love me? Yes. You know I love you. Do you love me? Yes. You know that I love you. But do you love me? Yes. Yes. Because I think the reason I come back to this event so often is because every time that we sin, I feel like we deny Jesus. When we sin, we look for something to bring us fulfillment. Whether it's lust, whether it's gossip, whether it's the idolatry of purchasing things, whatever your moral shortcomings, in those moments you're looking for something to give you a fulfillment that you don't think Jesus can give you in that moment. But I hear the voice of Jesus saying, Do you love me? And we say yes. He says, Feed my lambs. He says, take care of my sheep. He says, forgive yourself because I've forgiven you. 
We've got work to do and my kingdom needs each one of you. God's kingdom doesn't need spectators. God's kingdom doesn't need consumers of religion. God's kingdom needs people who will roll up their sleeves and go to work loving and serving others in the name of Jesus. God needs people who trust that Jesus shed enough blood on the cross that their sins are forgiven that they can say, yeah, I'll teach that class of five and six-year-olds. Oh, the number of people that have turned that down. Not because they're intimidated by five and six-year-olds necessarily, but because they feel like they're not worthy, that they're not good enough. If you can fog a mirror, and if you're sorry for what you did, church, then you're good enough. I'm going to say that again, and I need some amens. Okay? If you're breathing, maybe that was the fog of mirror part that threw y'all. <laughs> maybe I'm showing my age. Okay? If you're alive and you're sorry for what you did, God says you are good enough. Church, we got to get past it all. I love that verse from Isaiah in the scripture reading this morning. This says, come, let us talk about this. In other words, let's reason. Let's have a conversation. That scripture that says, hey, you know, let's, let's talk about what you've done. Your sins are as scarlet, but I am making them white as snow. Church, that's good news. I love the idea that our sins are washed away. 1 John 2.12, we let God's Word have the final word. I am writing to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of His name. We are a forgiven people. We know that God forgives us. We have to be people who forgive ourselves. Are we going to remember what we did in the past? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We're going to remember it. But when we remember it, let's remember it because we are to learn from it. And we're to learn from the pain it caused. Maybe ourselves, maybe others. And that we go and we do better. But church family, the kingdom of God needs workers. The kingdom of God needs people who can say, I'm a sinner saved by the grace that He has lavished on me. And I'm ready to work for God's kingdom, for God's church. Oh, may we be those people. If you're with us this morning and you have not yet accepted God's tremendous gift of grace, then we offer that to you this morning. Rick is going to lead us in a song in just a moment and it's going to give us an opportunity that if, if you've 
not yet confessed what Peter confessed, that Jesus is the Son of God, then you'll have the opportunity to confess that this morning. To be immersed in the waters of baptism. And what a beautiful thing that is to become a child of God. You're with us today and there's something that you need people to pray about on your behalf. Then the invitation is offered for that reason also. Let's stand together and sing this song.